evening. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. The book of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8, and we have a new series title. Since we um, are not doing the big picture, uh, we obviously are not doing uh, just a verse or, I mean, a book or two a week. We kind of finished that, but we decided to hang out a little bit in Revelation. So the, for me, the theme of the uh, book of Revelation is revealing Jesus. You get it from the first couple of verses, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the book of Revelation is about us understanding, seeing uh, who Jesus really is, what he's saying to us, and uh, how we're to respond to that. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, tonight. And to me, um, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, probably, uh, for me, uh, some of the most important words in the whole book. Um, these are the message to the church. Uh, a lot of Revelation is, um, is uh, there's a lot of symbolism. Uh, some of it, you know, you read 10 commentators, you get 10 different ideas of what the guys really, uh, of what John is seeing, what that means for us in our day. But boy, these messages to the churches, this are, this, these are Jesus' words to his church, and we can understand these uh, pretty clearly. So look, if you will, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And so we want to talk about responding in the right way. That's really what the Spirit's saying to the churches, about us responding uh, the right way. I read about a guy who got a, a text, and I love the way he responds. You know, sometimes you get wrong numbers and you get the calls and things like that. And um, the person sent a text to him and said, who's this? Well, you should know who you're texting, right? Who's this? And he texted back and said, why? And so they texted back, are you a boy or a girl? G-I-R-L-L-L. -L -L. Are you a boy or a girl? And he texted back, I'm a grill. <laughs> and so he says, what's your name? And he writes back, George Foreman. <laughs> and so he writes back and says, I thought you were a girl. He said, no, I'm a grill. <laughs> <laughs> and his last text back was, oh, <laughs> I wish I had that kind of thought, right, to be able to respond that quickly uh, to somebody. Laura was telling me last Sunday night we got home, uh, she said she was teaching preschool praise in the back, and um, they were talking about when Jesus called the disciples to follow him. And so she was talking about uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John being in the fishing boats, you know, how they left the boats to follow Jesus. And, and Maddie was sitting in her chair, and, and Laura said right in the middle of the lesson, and she said, and they got up and followed Jesus, and they left the boat and followed Jesus. And Maddie jumped out of her chair and said, I want to follow Jesus too. <laughs> and that's the way we're to respond, right? So Tommy and Dorothy, we got them in the right direction. <laughs> uh, that's the way we want, that's what, that should be all of our desires, right? I want to follow Jesus. And that's what the Spirit is saying um, to the churches that we that He's looking for a group of people, any group of people, bound together by the blood of Christ, who will say, We want to follow Jesus too. Wherever He leads, wherever He goes, we want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. And and these are this is a letter, these are letters written to seven churches. Uh, I believe they're real churches, and I believe they're representative 
of churches of any time period. And I believe what's important for us as we look at these seven churches is to locate ourselves. Find out where we are in these seven churches. And I think there's probably information in every one of the seven churches that will apply to just about any church. I believe you can read the letter to any of these seven and find something there for you. Find something there for Hopewell. And so, and, but there will be particular ones maybe that we locate ourselves uh, even better. And what Jesus is saying here is, when I speak, and he's always speaking, right, respond in faith, love, and obedience. And so that's what we want to look at tonight. As we look at these churches, as we hear what the Spirit is saying, we want to respond in that kind of way. And Jesus does not go to superficial things here. The letters of seven churches, you know, this is some of Jesus' last words uh, to the church. And he's right, I mean, you know, Paul writes letters. Of course, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. No book's more inspired than the other book. But boy, when you got Jesus himself saying, all right, last book of the Bible, here's my message to the church really need to pay attention. He's not talking about trivial things. He's not talking about color of the carpet. He's not talking about song style. He's not talking about kind of, you know, version of the Bible you read. He's not talking about superficial kind of stuff. He's talking about hard things, hard things that really need to be uh, paid attention to. And so when Jesus speaks, we need to listen to what he's trying to say to us because these issues are important to Jesus. Man, they ought to be important to us. Whatever's important to him needs to be important to you and I as well. So last time we looked at Ephesus. Ephesus, in some ways, was a great church. They were a hardworking church. They labored to the point of exhaustion. They were a church that endured. They weren't giving up. They were a church with good doctrine. They believed the right things. And so there was a lot to like about the church at Ephesus. We did see that Jesus had something against them. He said, you've left your first love. And we saw last week that... Um, that that is such a critical deal. I mean, because when you start doing church without a love for Jesus, it's going to degenerate into something that God never intended it to be. It's going to become legalistic. It's going to become cold. It's going to become stiff. It's going to become boring. It's going to become hard. It leads to burnout, and there's, and there's no fruit. There's no, there's no attractiveness. The beauty of Christ is missed. I mean, think about it. Any relate, close relationship you have, if somebody says, you know, I don't mind, you know, kind of helping you out, but I don't really like you, love you. Well, I mean, there's hardly, as I said last week, there's hardly anything that Laura could say to me that would be more detrimental in that I don't love you like I used to. If you get that off track... Everything else gets off track. But when we have that first love right and we love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then our worship will be better, right? If you love Jesus, if you're walking in love with Jesus tonight, you're going to worship better. Sunday school will be better, right? Also, uh, offerings will be better. Missions will be better. Fellowships will be better. Obedience will be better. In fact, Jesus said, he that has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me which led Henry Blackaby to write this, that experiencing God, if you have an obedience problem, you have a love problem. Now, I don't know about you, that, that's pretty convicting to me. <laughs> if you have an obedience, sometimes we look at something and we say, man, it's just a hard thing to obey. It's just a hard thing to obey. But, I mean, I could ask you for the hardest thing in the world. If your child or your spouse needed it, you'd be willing to do it. Well, you wouldn't even back up for it if it would be something they really, really uh, needed. So tonight we're going to look at the second church. That was the church in Ephesus. Tonight we're going to look at the second church, the church of Smyrna. Church of Smyrna, which is the faithful church. The church of Smyrna is one of two churches that Jesus has no words of correction for. 
There's only two out of seven, this one in Philadelphia, that Jesus doesn't say repent. He doesn't say, I have this against you. He doesn't say, you need to do better in this area. And both churches were heavily persecuted. They tell us a little bit of something, right? So let's look at the church of Smyrna, and let's see what Jesus uh, says to this church. The Smyrna church and the uh, Philadelphia church are the only two churches that have no words of correction. Revelation 2, which may mean uh, I'd like to be a part of that church, right? But when you read through it, you may have a second thought. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Now, boy, if he's the first and the last and he died and came to life again, he's worth paying attention to. Amen? There you go. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, these probably are uh, racially Jews, but their heart is not right. They're not serving the true and living God. They're not worshiping like God wants them to worship. They're persecuting the people of God. And that's why he calls them a synagogue of Satan. They are, the word Satan means adversary. They are an adversary of what, the, what God is doing through his church, okay? Um, verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And it's interesting when Jesus identifies himself to the church at Smyrna that he identifies himself as the one who was dead and came to life again. That sort of happened with the city of Smyrna. In 580 B.C., the city of Smyrna ceased to exist. It was overcome, and there was no population. Anymore. It was kind of wiped out. And it was wiped out until 290 B.C., for 290 years. I know you do the math, and it's 290, and it's 290 B.C. I had to do that two or three times to make sure I wasn't getting something confused there. For 290 years, the, the people of Smyrna, the city, did not exist. And then it came back to life. And to that city, uh, Jesus said, I am the one who was dead and I've come back to life. Aren't you glad Jesus is a life-giving Savior? And he can have, a, he can take a, a marriage that's dead. He can take a joy that's dead. He can take a peace that's dead, a passion that's dead. He can take a witness that's dead. He can bring it back to life. We serve a God who brings resurrection. Some people misunderstand the Christian faith. It's not about trying to make bad people good. It's making dead people live. There's life in Christ. There's life in the Spirit. This is not trying to say to them, you need to do the best you can. He's saying, man, look, your city got resurrected once upon a time. I, my dead body got resurrected. And if you can resurrect a body, you can resurrect anything that uh, God can resurrect anything he wants to. So I would encourage you tonight. If you're discouraged about your thought life, you're discouraged about something else going on in your life, look to Jesus. He raises the dead. That's why we always have hope. That's why we should never give up. That's why we're grateful for those fresh starts we talked about a few moments ago every, every day. Now, Smyrna was a good city. It was a good-sized city. Competed last week, I told you Ephesus was the dominant city in the area. This is in uh, modern-day Turkey. 
Um, and, um, but, but Smyrna competed with Ephesus as being uh, one of the larger cities, one of the more dominant cities. They had a gulf, an inland gulf, about 35 miles inland, inland where Smyrna was. So it was a good trade center. It was protected. So it's just, a, it's just one of those nicer uh, places. Smyrna was one of the first cities to engage in emperor worship. Now, emperor worship, the emperor Domitian during this time probably, um, you know, the Herods earlier uh, were called Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Herod, Caesar Domitian. And so Caesar, Caesar's the title, the emperor, once a year at least, most of these cities would have to come to some sort of a place and say, give like a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Now, you can see the problem, that's going to be for Christians, right? And so Smyrna was one of the first cities to really engage in uh, emperor worship. Um, they had a strong loyalty to Rome. Rome had done a lot for this particular city. And so that means what? Big trouble for the Christians. They are in a particular hotbed here in the place of Smyrna. And Jesus said to them that he knew about their afflictions. I know about your afflictions, tribulations, hard times. And the word that he uses for tribulations or afflictions here is a word that means Uh, a pressure that crushes you. He's not talking about a little bit of a headache. He's not talking about coming to church on Sunday night when it's raining. (laughs) That's not really the kind of affliction he's talking about. He's talking about something that, that absolutely crushes you. This church is going through a crushing time. And the word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. You've heard the, from the word myrrh. You know that from the wise men who brought uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh uh, came from a plant. Um, had a gum rising, comes out of this plant. Gave off a, a beautiful smell. It was bitter to the taste, but it gave off a beautiful smell. Uh, using perfumes, uh, the wise men, they, they, we, you know, we tend to say three. We don't know how many wise men there were. Myrrh probably uh, symbolized his death. They would use it in embalming. It had a sweet flavor, a sweet smell uh, to it. And so but the thing about myrrh, it, it, interesting, gold was for the king. Frankincense was because he was God. And then myrrh because of his death. Now, myrrh had to be crushed to give off the scent. And it's such an unusual, such a, it's such a cool thing um, that the Bible puts this church in Smyrna, which comes from the word myrrh, this church that is being crushed, is being afflicted, and Jesus does not have any words of condemnation for them, doesn't have any words of correction for them, because what? They were being faithful to him in a really, really difficult time, and what happened? They're giving off a beautiful scent to Christ. He is pleased with their faithfulness uh, to him. Now, they lived, the Bible says, in poverty. He said, I know your, your poverty. And the word here means extreme poverty. And their poverty, now the city was fairly prosperous. The poverty probably for the Christians is coming because they're Christians, because they love the Lord. And so they, and the word for poverty here, kind of like the word for affliction, it means the lowest of the low. It's talking about an abject poverty, people that are having a hard time feeding themselves. And so they live this place where there is some material, uh, there are jobs, there there are ways to make livings, and yet because of their faith in Christ, because they won't come and say, Caesar is Lord, they've probably lost their jobs, they're probably having a hard time finding a job. You know, we talk about in America, well, you know, there's certain things I can't say, certain things I can't do, certain things, uh, but as, as a Christian, 
but you don't have to, on the application form, write, I'm a Christian, and it's automatically kicked out. That's the kind of persecution that these guys are going through. And yet, here's the interesting thing. Jesus says, I know you're poverty, but you're rich. I know you're poverty, but you're rich. So he commends them. He commends them for their material poverty, but their spiritual wealth. Now, think about that for a minute. You know, we tend to rejoice in our material wealth as the blessing of God, and it is. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. I don't want to live in material poverty like a lot of people in the world live today. But, but is spiritual wealth more important to us than material wealth? Are we willing to give up material wealth to live in spiritual wealth? They were rich spiritually. Think about that. What were they rich in? Probably rich in faith, right? Probably rich in love probably rich in good works, probably rich in joy, rich in peace, and all those kind of things, Um, you know, would love for them to have had some some more things materially, but they were rich where it counted at, and that's what's important. Rusty Goodman wrote a song years ago called A Poor Rich Man. Uh, Here's some of the, the lyrics. He wrote, well, we usually judge a man by the clothes he wears or by the car he's riding in, or you can usually tell if he's doing very well by the house he's living in. But I'm here to say it doesn't work that way with everybody I know because I got acquainted with some poor rich folks a little while ago. And the chorus says this, I'm a poor rich man, I'm a poor rich man. Oh, you see, it really happened to me. I'm a millionaire. I know that I'm poor, but I got a lot more than many rich folks I've known. I got a home in the sky that money didn't buy, and I am a poor rich man. Second verse goes like this. When a man is rich with this world's goods, he's usually got a lot of friends. They all want to try to live so high when they know that much of it's a sin. Well, even if I could, I don't believe I would, want the riches of this old world. When it's my time to go, I'll be happy to know that I'm a poor rich man. And so we want to set our hearts uh, on spiritual riches, on the things that really matter. And we want to teach our children, disciple our children. You know, we so many times, we, we encourage our, our kids in America, get a good education, get a good job. Why? So you can make a lot of money. But let's not do that at the expense of or in place of or more important than being spiritually rich. Because if you're rich in love and you're rich in faith and you're rich in joy and you're rich in peace and you marry somebody that's that way, probably going to have a pretty good marriage, right? Probably going to have a pretty good life. Probably going to have some pretty good friends. Probably going to have a, a pretty good sense of self and identity and purpose in life. And money can't buy any of those things. The things that are absolutely so very important. So the poverty is probably due to the, to the allegiance to Caesar that Smyrna has so much. Probably in times there were mass executions that were done for people that wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. And so Christ does not reprimand this church. Doesn't say anything against against this church, but he does warn them of impending imprisonment, impending persecution that's heading their way. And you wish it wasn't that way, right? That's why I said when we read about the book of Smyrna, no correction, no words of of saying you need to repent. Think, man, I want to join that church. And Christ said, look, you know, uh, you're being faithful, but there's more coming. He doesn't promise them that they're not going to be in prison. doesn't promise them that the persecution is fixed to the end. In fact, he says there's an impending prison, imprisonment for some of you, uh, urging them to remain faithful even to the point of death. Now, in, in, the, in verse 10 or so, it says that you'll be, some of you will be in prison for 
10 days. Uh, a lot of people wonder about what the 10 days means. There's all kind of meaning behind the, you know, all kind of ideas and, and different things about the 10 days. Uh, it's interesting to me, the number 10 typically is a number of fullness or completion. Um, uh, some people even think it has the idea of a number of maturity. What it reminds me of is Daniel chapter 1. When Daniel and his friends were to be to serve the, the choice food from the king's table, and Daniel's, you know, like, we're not supposed to eat that. We don't want him to defile ourselves. Uh, he's risking persecution, right, because he doesn't want to partake of that diet. And he says, give us just water and vegetables for 10 days, for 10 days. And that's what I'm reminded of. It's kind of like a full test. You're going to be tested to the fullness. You're going to be tested in, a, in, a, in an amount of time that's, that's, that's enough. It's plenty, it's enough, and God has his hand on how long it will be. And I believe the real meaning behind 10 days is it's going to be a while, but it's going to be short compared to eternity. You can go through it. You will suffer greatly, but to the, in, in, in comparison to eternal life. And I think that because of the way the letter ends. You got, I will give you eternal life. And so I believe he's saying it's going to be a period of time. And we know, we know from history there was way more than 10 days. We know from history there was, there was years and years and years of persecution uh, in Smyrna. As a matter of fact, there's a guy in Smyrna named Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp, about 50 or 60 years after this letter was written, Polycarp was one of the church leaders uh, in Smyrna. The authorities found out about Polycarp and his allegiance to Christ. Um, actually, uh, according to some historians, there was probably a slave girl under torture that gave Polycarp up and where he lived. And so the authorities came after him. Of course, he, they put him in hiding, but the slave girl found out where he was, and, and as I said, they tortured her. Uh, it's probably what happened. She gave him up. And so they, they came, and they arrested Polycarp, and he was an old man. Uh, he was a kind person, loving person, and even the guys that arrested him, uh, they didn't want him to be arrested. Uh, they, they tried to talk him uh, out of it. And so when they were taking him in, even the soldier captain um, that brought him in said to him, he pled with him, he said, what harm is it? Just say Caesar is Lord and go on about your way. Offer sacrifice. Save your life. And so when he was brought before the proconsul, the leader of the government there, and they asked him to either curse the name of Christ, say Jesus is Lord, or die. And Polycarp said, this is one of the famous uh, quotes from, from the early centuries. As far as we know, well, let me get to this first. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When they threatened him with death, he said, I've served Jesus for 86 years. He's never done anything wrong to me. How in the world can I forsake him now? So they threatened him. With burning at the stake is what the, what the punishment was for Polycarp. And Polycarp replied after they threatened him with burning, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked and the judgment to come and an everlasting punishment. What are you waiting for? Do what you will. He said, look, yeah. I understand you're threatened with me with burning, but there's a judge who comes that 
has a fire that burns forever. This would be a very short thing. This is, this is very short. This is kind of like that 10-day thing. This is going to be a short time. Now, I would imagine it would seem like eternity, right? But it's going to be short compared to spending eternity that way, short compared to the glory of Christ that has. And so this loyalty to Jesus of Smyrna was costing them and costing them dearly, and Jesus has no reprimand for them. There's no condemnation, no criticism. I kind of believe in Smyrna. It'd be hard to be a hypocrite and live in Smyrna church. It'd be hard to be a half-hearted Christian and live in Smyrna. It'd be hard to be a lukewarm Christian and live in Smyrna. It'd be hard to be a Christian who left their last, uh, left their first love and, uh, and live as a church member in Smyrna. It, I mean, you just couldn't do that in this church and in this city and this place. Revelation 2.11, let's look at it. He who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus says, what? Give up your life for me and you gain life eternal. Believe on me, trust in me, give me your heart and life, and I've got things for you that cannot be taken away. And that's what I, I, what I was thinking about as we did our Thanksgiving time tonight. There are things that God has given you and I that can never be taken away from us. The love that Christ has given you can never be taken away from you. Your home in heaven can never be taken away from you. Your friendship with Jesus can never be taken away from you. The peace, love, and joy we can give up, right? We can sin and not confess it and give that up, but nobody can take it from us. We have to give that up. So God has given us so many that the Holy Spirit inside of us, we cannot, it cannot be taken from us. Our relationship with God cannot be taken from us. I mean, there's so many things that God has given us that cannot be taken from us. And that's why we can say, even materially, if we're poor, we're a millionaire spiritually. About two weeks ago, my sister called me, and she said, um, I'm going to tell you what happened. I said, what? She said, there was some vandalism in, um, in the cemetery where mom's buried. And uh, she said, no, nothing happened to mom's grave. She said, it's fine. But uh, one of my uncles saw it, and uh, my sister saw the vandalism out there. And so they called my dad, of course, real quick to let him know. When he, because he goes to mom's grave about every other week or so, let him know there's been some vandalism, nothing's happened to mama's grave, it's all fine and good. But here's the thing, I thought about that. They, um, they turned over some headstones, and uh, they put gasoline on a patch of grass and burned a big place, uh, burned a big patch of grass. Now, I don't understand that, to be honest with you. Um, I know if I steal something, I get your $10, right? I don't know what you get out of turning over headstones and burning grass and things like that. But here's what I thought about. It doesn't matter what they do to that cemetery. They can't hurt my mama. <laughs> they can't hurt her. They can't diminish her joy at all. They can't persecute her. They can't harm her. They can't cause her pain. They can't cause her disappointment. They're, I mean, they can take her grave and do whatever they want to do to it. But she has been victorious. Why? Because she belongs to Jesus, right? Faithful, holding on to her faith, trusting in Christ all the way uh, to death. And so what does that um, last verse 2.11 say? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all. All. Everybody say at all by the second death. The first death is physical death, of course. Second death is eternal death. Aren't you glad you have God's word? 
you cannot be hurt at all. In this life, people can hurt us. They can say bad things about us. Uh, maybe if you're a Christian, you might cost you your job someday. Hopefully not, but maybe it might. Uh, people can betray you, lie about you, misjudge you, misunderstand you, call you things that you, or accuse you of things you haven't done, all of that. But, uh, but I promise that they can't take away that which is most important. And there's coming a day when you'll enter into the, into the second, into the second um, whatever the second death cannot touch you at all. Would you stand please with the heads bowed and eyes closed? One of the best things, if you're suffering, if you're hurting, one of the best things you can hear is, this is going to end. <laughs> it's not always going to be this way. And see, that's where, we, that's where we really get depressed. We really get anxious when we think about, it's always going to be this way. Aren't you glad? It's not always going to be this way. For the folks at Smyrna, that's what Jesus was saying to them. It's hard, and it's going to be hard for a while. you got imprisonments waiting on some of you guys but it's going to be 10 days uh, I'll be with you you'll bear it up and it's coming a day and just think you guys for 2,000 years the people at Smyrna have not been hurt at all not been touched by any evil anywhere Father thank you 